Welcome to the People's Church Sermoncast. You can join us for our live worship services on Sundays at 10 a.m. People's Church is located at the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen in Vancouver, Washington. Please visit our website at peoplesvancouver.church to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. And now for this week's sermon. You're listening to the sermon cast from People's Church of Vancouver, Washington. You're invited to join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We're located at 6801 East Mill Plain Boulevard in Vancouver, Washington. For more information, visit us at peopleschurchvancouver.org. Now for this week's sermon. How you doing, church? Doing good today? Wonderful. So last Sunday of the month, must be my turn, huh? Comes around pretty darn regular, doesn't it? Oh, God is good, God is faithful. And if you have your Bible, I hope you have your Bible, or you have a mobile device with your Bible on it, turn to 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to take a look at an interesting story. Maybe a story that doesn't get as much airtime as other stories, but we're going to look at this story in Second Kings today. As I look around the room, I know that there are a number of you that are 60 years old or better. Huh? Yeah. Like a fine wine, you just get better with age, right? Um, somebody, somebody on Facebook posted, uh, what do you miss about the 70s? I said, well, the music and my youth. Thank you very much. I... I've been coming out of this crud, you know, and feeling good, and boy, my lungs were clearing up, and all the symptoms were going away and everything, and I got up Saturday morning, I I crawled out of bed, out of of bed Saturday morning, and somehow, unbeknownst to me, I had pulled a muscle in in my calf, so as I get out of bed, I just basically fell to the floor, because my leg wasn't going to hold me up, and I thought, where did that come from? All I did was sleep for the last nine hours, I was minding my own business, did Teresa hit me with a baseball bat in the middle of the night? What's going on here? But hey, it's just middle age, right? It's just being 60-something. So is it still middle age once you go over 60? Okay, yeah. Well, oh, hallelujah. Yeah, I'll be 64 next month. And, you know, having birthdays is nice. Get to go out to a nice meal, that kind of thing. But getting older, I don't really look forward to it. It's, It's not that much fun. My dad's 84, and he says, son, I'm telling you, getting old is not for sissies. Getting old is not for sissies, so I'm taking his word for it and all that good stuff. Title of my message this morning as we roll off into this whole situation, Strike While the Iron is Hot. Strike While the Iron is Hot. This is an old saying. It's been around for a while. And um, this little, these are called idioms, I think, is what the dictionary called it when I went to look this up. And um, it can be traced back to the early 1500s is when this phrase was coined. You know, as a society, we say things um, out of cliché, and sometimes we're not sure what they mean, where they came from, and uh, how long they've been around. So I thought I'd give you a little background on this as we dive into this thing today. But this can be traced back to the early 1500s, attributed to a gentleman by the name of Sir Walter Scott, and he was a Scottish novelist. Okay, And he was very much responsible for kind of bringing shape and form and everything else to the country of Scotland. But So he, he coined this phrase. Obviously, it's a reference 
to the art of blacksmithing. Now, I don't know that we have too many blacksmiths left uh, in, the, in our country. Uh, there was a time when there was a blacksmith in every town because the blacksmith was the guy that maintained the horses and, and uh, maintained the wagons and maintained the, the weapons. I mean, he was the guy that he was kind of the fix-all. But it's a reference to the art of blacksmithing. And when they would do blacksmithing, um, they would heat the iron till it was a glowing red. And, the, and they had to get it that hot to make it pliable. Otherwise, they weren't going to get anything done with it. And uh, then he would place it on an anvil and take a big hammer, and he would start pounding on that, shaping it into whatever he was wanting to make. Now, we still use the term, strike while the iron is hot. And here's the modern definition. To do something immediately while there is still a good chance to do it. Let me say that again. To do something immediately while there is still a good chance to do it. And as the old saying goes, I'm preaching to the choir today. I'm preaching to myself because my human nature is I'm the great procrastinator. Why put off today? Why not put off today what you can probably get done tomorrow? That's, you know, it's not the way it's written, but that's kind of my philosophy. Just, I'll get to it. Don't worry, I'll get to it. But to do something immediately while there is still a good chance to do it, it points to the fact that change in our life isn't always possible in every season. Change is not always possible in every season. So we must be spiritually prepared. We have to be watching carefully as to that season. And then when we see a sign of opportunity come up, that's when we have to take action. Amen? We're in a season in our lives where um, a few months back, Tiffany and Shalice bought their first home. They bought a lovely little condominium over off a of fourth plane. And that left that big old house that we live in, the two of us to kind of rattle around in. It's four bedrooms and three bathrooms and about 3,300 square feet. And sometimes you kind of get lost. The other day, the other day I was walking down the hall and somehow I walked into what was Tiffany's old bedroom and it's empty. And I walked in there and I thought, well, why did I come in here? I, I'll come in here for any reason. But it was, again, it was one of those middle age moments, you know? So we've been talking about selling the house, but there's a season in which it would probably be better if we wait just a little bit longer. And one of those key factors is we don't want to have to change schools for Shalice. Her school is right down the street, like six blocks. And she doesn't want us to move out of the house and change her address and all of those kind of things. She just wants to finish the sixth grade right where she's at. So, Oh, fifth grade. Oh, yeah, well, Papa's, Papa's not good at keeping track of that. She wants to, is that all for elementary school? Fifth grade is the last year of elementary school around here, I guess. It wasn't that way when I was a kid. Um, but she wants to finish fifth grade, so sh- she's always telling us, Now, Papa, you cannot sell the house, and you cannot move away until I'm done with the fifth grade. I said, well, you know, honey, I said, we'll do whatever we can make happen. You know, whatever, whatever is in our power to do, we'll make sure and try to do that. So change isn't always possible in every season. Let's look at our text this morning, 2 Kings uh, chapter 13, verses 14 through 19. Follow along and I'll read them. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. Said, my father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha said, get a bow. I, I picture Elisha having to get up off of his sickbed. To, to greet this younger man. And uh, he says, get a bow and get some arrows. And he did so. Now take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. 
And when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. He says, now open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. And then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground. And he struck it three times, and he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him, and he said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Now this this passage was written, and I, I got to looking at that, and I thought, well, did he tell him to strike it six times? No, not exactly. I didn't read that anywhere. But it was a given that this was, they were gearing up for war. Okay, so Elisha was being passionate and trying to maybe do like an illustrated sermon for him at that time. I don't know. But 2 Kings was written by the prophet Jeremiah. A lot of the theologians feel that way. And it was around 550 B.C. So between the time this story took place and the time that Sir Walter Scott coined the phrase, strike while the iron's hot, uh, it was about 2,000 years, okay? So I'd say, the, the thing that crossed my mind was, God came up with the idea a whole lot before Sir Walter Scott did, okay? God's the one that came up with this idea. He's the one that probably coined the phrase, even though Elisha is not recorded as saying said, he, he pretty much lays it out. We're going to look at four actions that Elisha took uh, in the spiritual realm that led to victory, both in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. Number one, he calls for warfare with the enemy. He calls for warfare with the enemy. Taking the bow and arrow, we're not just talking about going out and you know shooting tonight's dinner kind of thing. It signifies war with the enemy. Okay? We're at war with the kingdom of darkness, and at least, at least this king knew well enough to consult the man of God and find out what was going on and what was going to be, going to be coming up in his future in his kingdom. You say, well, who's the enemy, Mike? Well, you might think the enemy is your boss, or your mother-in-law, or your parents, or your teenager, or your spouse, or even the police. But Paul tells us who the real enemy is, Ephesians 6 and 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those are forces that we cannot see with our human eye. We can't see that with our naked eye. But the Bible tells us that it's there. We get buffered by it. We get buffeted by it. And sometimes we don't understand what's going on. Billy Graham had a quote that I will share with you. He says, Much of the church warfare is fought by blindfolded soldiers who can't see the forces against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents, so they respond by striking at each other. I thought, wow, that's poignant, isn't it? We know that something's bugging us. We know that something's bothering us. We know that that there's spiritual oppression coming our way, but sometimes we strike out at each other in the family of God, and we don't know why. We think, well, what kind of deal is that? It's kind of like the guy who had too much to drink, and he was driving home. And he turned onto a one-way street, going the wrong direction. A policeman pulled him over and said, hey, what are you doing? You could have killed yourself and maybe someone else. Didn't you see the one-way arrows back there? The man responded, arrows? I didn't even see the Indians. <laughs> Sometimes we're that way. 
Sometimes we're just a little, huh? Yeah. Sometimes we're just a little bit uh, oblivious, so to speak, uh, about the arrows of the enemy. So we're going to look at three different levels of spiritual warfare. Oh, my footnote there after that little humor thing was, don't be that guy. Amen. Three levels of spiritual warfare that goes on in our lives. Letter A, the battle within us. The battle within us. Romans 7.23 says, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Mark 3.25 says, If a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. If that's going on in your life, where your spiritual home, spiritual house within us is divided, you're not going to last. You're not going to, you're not going to make it through the battle. Amen? We cannot be effective Christians if we cannot conquer our fallen human nature inside, and that is our tendency to sin. We have to set up uh, a buffer, so to speak, between us and those dark forces so we are not taken down by our own sin. Letter B, our outward battle is with other humans. Other humans, as Billy Graham talked about, striking at each other. Sometimes our friends, our loved ones, or people that we're associated with, they stand in opposition to the gospel. They stand in opposition to the truth, okay? And sometimes you can only take so much of that, and you got to walk away. How many of you have unsaved loved ones that... Not only do you pray for them, but you've witnessed to them. And you've witnessed. I remember my mom trying to witness to her dad. He finally he made a confession of his faith at 99 years old. My aunt sat beside him on the bed and prayed with him. And, uh, but my mom tried to witness to him over and over and over again. And he wasn't having anything to do with that goofy, tongue-talking religion. Okay, that was just, Grandpa was a tough old bird. And he didn't want anything to do with that. So sometimes, I think I, I, I remember my mom telling me, she said, I got to the point where I couldn't witness to him anymore. All I could do was pray for him. Kind of had to walk away from the drama that, it, that, that transpired and took place when she was trying to witness to him, and he was cussing her out. And that's all he knew to do because he was a heathen, you know. Love the old guy, but that's kind of the way it went. So life is too short to be plagued. Sometimes, most of the time, with all the drama that goes along with that opposition. Amen? Sometimes it pays to walk away. It's hard to do, but sometimes it pays to walk away. Luke chapter 18 says this, verses 29 and 30. It says, Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus said those words to reassure those guys that were traveling around with him, his disciples. And uh, he wanted to reassure them, yeah, you've given up your home and you may have to go sleep with your head on a rock every night because we don't have a lot. We don't check into Motel 6 on a regular basis, that kind of thing. But he reassured them that the fact that they had walked away from all that they knew to be security in their lives, their jobs, their professions, all of that, and followed Jesus, he wanted them to understand 
that there would be great returns in doing all of that. Amen? Letter C, invisible spiritual forces. Invisible spiritual forces. Forces that are allied with Satan. They're not allied with God. One-third of the angels fell. Those are the demonic forces that we deal with in our, in our world, in our lives sometimes. And our greatest weapon against those demonic forces is prayer. It's just that simple. You can quote the word and quote the word, but when you start to pray and you plead, we've sung about this morning the blood of Jesus over and over this morning. When you plead the blood of Jesus and take a hold of the reality of what he's done for us, that's when demonic forces have to flee. Amen? God promised us in his word, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I am glad for that. Jesus said these words, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. He knew, he knew that he, what we would face. And he declared those words. And we can declare that in our lives. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. I am so thankful that we are on the winning side. Yeah. Amen? Amen? I don't know if, if, uh, if you've read the end of the book, but we win. It, it, may be, it may be some hard work getting there. We may have to uh, trudge through some heavy, heavy stuff. But in the end, we win. Number two today for you note takers, the anointing of the Spirit. The anointing of the Spirit. I want you to take notice in our scripture that Elisha's hands, even when he was ill in his body, he put his hands on the king's hands. Okay? And in the word, that symbolizes God's miraculous assistance to us as human beings made available to us through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit and power coming on us as frail human beings. Wow. Ezekiel said it in chapter 3, verse 22. He said, The hand of the Lord was upon me. Another reference to God's anointing. And God wants to put His hands on you, put His hands on, I, on, on myself, on me, and He wants to empower us with His Holy Spirit power, His anointing, that we would be able to go out and do things much greater than what we could do in our own strength. Amen? And I thought about King David. David was a great warrior. The Bible records that. He, uh, the anointing would come upon him, and uh, he killed the lion. And the anointing came upon him, and he killed the bear. And then he went out to face Goliath, and all he had was five little pebbles that he took from the uh, brook, from the little water running there in the valley, and his slingshot. But he had God on his side. Amen? Now, I would say, I would, I would chance to say that David was a pretty good shot and uh, maybe good enough to uh, catch his dinner once in a while, kill his dinner with that slingshot. But at the same time, if David is 30 or 40 yards from Goliath, Goliath has all his gear on, and he's only got one little exposed spot here of about two inches right in his forehead. I'm not sure David had the skills. Huh? He wasn't that good of a slingshot guy. And it wasn't one of these rubber band arm wrist rockets. This was a piece of leather on a string, and he slung it around and slung it around. But I guarantee you, when that left, when that rock left that little pouch, headed for Goliath, and hit him right here, I guarantee you that was the anointing of the Holy Spirit, laser guiding that little stone to the only exposed spot on Goliath's body. That was really a, a way to, to put him down. Killed him, cut, on it, cut off his head, marched into town with his, with his sword and his head in, in the other hand. And said, hey, we won, guys. Take that. 
Goliath. The Bible goes on to tell us that after he did that amazing feat, that they went on to plunder. Is it the Philistines? I want to say the Palestinians, but that's that's modern day. I got my P, I got my P's mixed up there for a minute. Not the Palestinians; it was the Philistines. Oh, but hey, you know, I don't know if I have the ability to be politically correct these days. I can't keep I can't keep track of it all. Yeah, it was the Philistines. I, I think I think I remember that Sunday school story now that I think about it. Let me share a little story with you about the power of God and the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Missionary by the name of Ludwig Namensen spent two years living among the Batak people in Indonesia. And he taught them Jesus' teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. The chief said, we too have laws that teach us not to steal, nor to take our neighbor's wife, or lie to our fellow man. Namensen replied and said, but my God gives you the power to keep his laws. The chief was kind of startled. Can you teach my people about that? So for six months, Namensen taught them about the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And at the end of that time, the chief declared, your way is so much better than our way. Our way tells us that what we ought to do, but your God says, come, I will walk with you and give you the inner strength to do the good thing that you must do. Huh? I will walk with you. I will give you the strength. Being filled with the Spirit of God makes all the difference in the world. Amen? How many of you know that? I remember when I was a little kid and I started singing in public. I was about five years old the first time my dad hung that big old red guitar around my neck and I stood before an audience and I sang and I played. And I remember experiencing the anointing of the Holy Spirit in doing so. I Really, up to that point in time, I didn't know what it was. But boy, did I learn real fast the difference between ministering with the Holy Spirit moving through something, moving through your life. Yeah, the with or without syndrome. And I'll take with. Thank you very much. And so all my life, I have just prayed over that and just coveted that and, and held it close to me to say, God, when I minister at the keyboard or I minister in the Word, whatever it is, when I sing, Lord, let your Holy Spirit be there because I don't want to do this thing without you. I don't want to be on my own because that's not, a, not the place to be. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said these words, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus already knew that the gospel message going out to the known world back in those days was not going to be an easy task. He said, but when I go away, I'm going to, the Holy Spirit's going to come and stay with you. And, he's going to, and it's going to help you to, to be the ministers of the gospel. It's going to help you get the gospel message out to the people that need it. And I would say, contend for all of us, that yes, we desperately need that power. Amen? Number three today in our notes is seeing the window of opportunity. Seeing the window of opportunity. Sometimes we don't always be able to recognize opportunity, even if it slaps us upside the head. Elisha told the king to open the window facing east. Well, in those days, east represented some pretty evil kingdoms. And some godless religions. Okay? Then he helped the king shoot the arrow of victory out that window toward the east. This is all very symbolic. The open window represented a window of opportunity that God was making on behalf of Jehoash. So how do I know when an opportunity strikes? How, do, how, how am I going to know that? I think we're all probably cognizant enough to know when an opportunity comes our way. But let me share... Again, a modern definition with you. 
is a set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something positive. Let me say that again. A set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something positive. Now, if the word at the end of that was negative, I wouldn't say that's an opportunity. I'd say it's temptation. Okay? There is a difference between temptation and an opportunity, of, a window of opportunity that God opens up for us. Amen? And we have the, we're the ones that have to sort it out and learn to walk through that. Okay? God arranges those opportunities. It's up to us to grab the opportunity and to walk into God's will before the window of opportunity closes because it's not always there like we talked about earlier. Those seasons change. So let the Holy Spirit be your eyes. Let, your Holy, let the Holy Spirit be your sensing device, your radar, so to speak. And learn to see the opportunities that God is setting before you. Letter B, only one window would do. He didn't give him an option of opening all the windows or three or four of the windows. He said, open the window that faces east. See, a lot of people think, well, it really doesn't matter which direction I shoot, which direction I go. They kind of get that mindset. All of them are good. I can just do it that way. But there's only one window that we can shoot through, and that's the window labeled Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the only one that has a direct connection to heaven. The Bible says that he's sitting on the throne beside the Father, ever interceding for you and me. He's our point of contact. Amen? You need your battery, your spiritual battery charged? Go to God. Go to Jesus. He is the one that is connected. He said these words in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's, you know, if you ever have to argue with somebody who's into, a, I mean, not argue, but just debate someone who's into an Eastern religion, just take them back to John fourteen six, Because they can't really prove to you that what you can prove to them when Jesus said those words. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to heaven except through me, except through, by accepting him. So there's no one like our Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me share this reading with you, and I think you'll bear witness to that. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he amazed the scholars. In manhood, he ruled over nature, walking on the stormy waves and calming the crashing sea. He healed multitudes without medicine, restored broken hearts without psychiatry. He never wrote a book, but inspired more books than any other. He never wrote a song, but he inspired more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but he has more students than all the colleges of the world. He never marshaled an army, but he has more soldiers willing to die for him than all the Napoleons, Caesars, and Alexanders combined. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. His enemies could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. Hell could not contain him. And all creation cannot stop him. He is the ever-living, highest-reigning Son of God, proclaimed by God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by demons. He is the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's on our side. Amen? Need I say more? Need I say more? My goodness. As I finish this up today, I'm going to invite the band to come back to the stage, and we're going to close in a song in a little bit. But uh, let me go on to number four. I guess I do need to say a little more since I do have a fourth point following that. But I'm going to ask you a series of questions in point number four. Number four, give your maximum effort for God. 
striking the arrows, the arrows on the ground in that room that day, it represent the number of times and battles that Jehoash would defeat God's enemies. Okay? He only received 50% of what he could have had from God. That's kind of a sad statement because he was there with the man of God and had he stopped short of what he could have had, all of the victories would have been him. his. All the battles would have been won. But he only won three out of six battles. Sometimes as church saints, we're content with doing just a little bit. Seems like the older we get, the more that is true. We may not have the energy to do more. But let me ask you a, a, ser- a series of questions here as I, as I wrap this up. So you brought a soul to Christ. Good. Bring another. Okay? So do you teach a class? I know we have these ladies that are sitting here this morning that teach these classes and do an outstanding job doing it. That's good, but seek to increase your class. And not just for the sake of having a room full of people, but for the sake of having those that will go out and disciple others and bring them in and be taught. Do you pay tithes? Good. But strive to give more. Strive to give more. Be intentional in your giving. There isn't a weekend that goes by that my wife is not making out her check ahead of time. She's very, we've always been very intentional. 45 years of marriage, always very intentional. And I know that some of you are the very same way. You come in during worship rehearsal and you drop your envelope or your check or whatever in the basket before service ever starts. So you were, you were mentally prepared to give. In your heart, you were prepared to give. And that is intentional giving. God loves that. God loves that. So be intentional in your giving. Sometimes we strike the iron of opportunity just three times, like Jehoash did. But God says, you should have struck it six times and then have complete and total victory. I don't know about you, but I want complete and total victory. I don't want my enemies coming back to plague me, to peck at me, like a woodpecker pecking on the house kind of thing. We had one of those when we lived in Puyallup. And this woodpecker was so dumb that he would peck on the metal gutter where the rainwater goes. Sound like a machine gun going off inside the house. I couldn't, I don't know how bad he beat, he beat his nose down, but, be, but he did this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I, I thought, well, I'm going to get a gun and I'm going I'm to do him in because I can't take it anymore. Then I found out that if, that if you shoot a woodpecker in the state of Washington, you might as well just turn yourself in because you can go to jail for a long time. So, yeah, I didn't shoot the woodpecker. (laughs) Thankfully, God sent him somewhere else, and hopefully he found some wood instead of metal. Let me ask you today, who knows what financial blessings or what improved situations might come your way if you learn to fight the good fight of faith? Amen? Shouldn't our striving for God surpass all other strivings in our life? We have our family We have our jobs, we have our homes, we have our relationships with friends. Shouldn't we put more into the work of the Lord than we would put into, say, our relationships or into our careers? Amen? Can we ever do enough for our Savior? Did he stop stop short any time or anywhere in his journey? I've watched the Passion of the Christ over and over again, and it brings me to tears every time. At the whipping post, did he turn his back? Did he say no? I mean, he could have. 
said he, he has all power. He could have turned his back and, and say, nah, you're not going to hit me with that cat of nine tails. No way. When the nails were driven into his hands and feet, did he say, I think I've done enough here and walk away? No. I thought about, when I was putting my notes together, I thought about an old song that we used to sing when I was a kid. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. It was a matter of choice on his part. When he was forsaken by the Father, did he count the cost too high? Remember the Bible talks about when God turned his back. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in the middle of a desert town, everything went black. Everything went dark. God couldn't stand to look on it any longer. But the gift that Jesus gave us, boy, I just get so tender as we were singing those songs today and taking communion together. I already knew what was in my notes. No, he didn't turn his back. He didn't stop short. He didn't cut corners. Anything like that. He simply gave of himself until death. Kept on going until he could utter the words, it is finished. And he knew in his mind and in his heart when it was finished. And the Bible says that he gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit to be reconciled with his father. My prayer for each one of us, each and every person here today, is that we will serve Jesus just as fervently as he served us. And what does that mean? To serve him to the very end. Amen? I don't know what I'll be doing in retirement when it comes to ministry. Um, I had a dream in the wee hours this morning. Don't know if it means a, a, anything at all. But I was a white-headed older man, and yet I was sitting behind the mixing console at a church down in Roseburg, Oregon, and I was mixing sound for a service. And I thought, well, I didn't go to that church when I lived in town in the first place. They're nice people. They have a good church. But I was sitting at the mixing console, and I was probably in my 70s or better. And uh, I thought, well, Lord, what does that mean? We've talked about retiring down there when the time comes, but that's a long way down the road. I don't even know if I'll be able to push the faders on a, on a mixing console when I get that old. I don't know how my hearing will be. Right now, my wife has to repeat everything three and four times just to talk to me. She'll be in the other room and she'll say something. And I'll walk around the corner and say, hey, look at me this way, okay? Don't look at the computer screen and talk to me at the same time because it is to no avail. It's just like... So I'll say, you have to look me in the eyes and you have to talk in my ear. And then I will know what you're trying to communicate to me, honey. Thank you very much. I tell you. So, who knows? My days as a sound man might be numbered. You never can tell. Father God, we are so grateful that we can come into your house today to lift our voices in worship, to lift our hands to praise you, to pray together over the needs of the house, to receive communion today, Father, as we remembered what your Son, Jesus Christ, did for us. Lord, when you present us with the opportunities in life to do better, to be better, to be witnesses for you, I pray, Lord, that we won't have to second-guess the opportunity, but, Lord, we will strike while the iron is hot. We'll shoot that arrow through the window of opportunity knowing that you have given us the green light and you have given us the go-ahead. 
and you are guiding us with your hands on the, on the weapons of warfare. I am thankful for that today, Father God. Thank you for your word. Lord, help this word to go into each of, one of, our, each of our hearts. Lord, that when opportunity arises, we would see it for what it is, Lord, and we would walk in it with bravery, with confidence, knowing that you are with us always. So thankful for that today. Bless these, Lord, as they go. Keep them healthy, I pray. And Lord, uh, continue to your healing touch on the lives of those who could not be here today. Continue to raise them up, I pray. Strike down this thing called COVID, Lord, that all of us could be healthy and all of us could be under the roof of this place, worshiping together in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. Lord, bless you guys today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being faithful to the house of God. Have a great week. We'll see you back here Sunday.